How's temperature in here? Okay, I got great, beautiful, cold, and warm. That's what I get for asking. Forget it. <laughs> That's the only thing worse is asking how's the volume of the music. No, you didn't hear that. <laughs> Pretty good. Well, we are in Mark chapter 5. We're going to pick up in verse 35. Jesus has been crossing the Sea of Galilee in what appears to be a way of trying to stay ahead of the crowds. Mark notes for us that Jesus stayed by the seashore on his latest arrival. But while Jesus is ready to flee the crowds when the mission of God is at risk, and that's what we've seen in the earlier portions of the Gospel, and that is why he flees the crowds, he's also ready always to accommodate what could otherwise be interpreted as an intrusion into that mission, when in actuality it's an orchestrated development by the Father. Now that might make a lot more sense if you listened to last week's message, if you weren't here. Well, the apparent intrusion into Jesus' plans is that he is approached by a well-known leader in the community. And that leader is called in the original language the Arche Sunagogon, which again is just translated kind of a leader of the synagogue, but he was much more than that. He was actually the president of the synagogue, responsible for all of the goings-ons at the synagogue. And despite his position with the religious leaders of the day, meaning he would have been well-known and had to function intimately with the Pharisees, the religious leaders who would conduct the temple rituals and services and all of that, in spite of that, He goes ahead, and his name is Jairus, by the way, and Jairus boldly steps out with everything that's at risk, and he approaches Jesus, and he falls down at Jesus' feet. And by the way, this particular detail is mentioned by both Matthew and Luke in their recording of this same episode. And with the Holy Spirit seemingly emphasizing this detail, helping us to discern the difference between those drawn to Jesus, the magic genie, again, these are all dovetails with past messages, and those drawn to Jesus, the King of Kings. The president of the synagogue was putting his standing in the community and in the church, I'll just use the word church, obviously it wasn't the church, it was the synagogue, but to kind of bring it into our day. He was putting everything in the community and in his church right on the line. Because again, remember, those he was doing this all before were the ones he had to work with intimately at the synagogue, the religious leaders of the day who could make your life miserable. And this is a big deal. And it's a big deal because persecution is the great revealer between convenience, faith, and saving faith. Jairus tells Jesus that his little girl is on her deathbed, that if, but that if he comes and he lays hands on her, that she's going to get well. And without any additional information from Mark concerning any kind of further interchange here, we're only told that Jesus, Jesus basically said to Jairus, lead the way. 
But Jesus doesn't get too far into that journey. And He is, of course, surrounded by the huge crowd of people who were again there largely to get a piece of the miracle-working marauder. But in the midst of this thronging crowd as He's moving along, He senses that there's an emission of power that goes forth from His very, very being to heal someone. And he knows it's a woman who has been ill with a blood dyscrasia for years and no one has been able to help her. She's convinced that Jesus isn't just a spiritual flim-flam man, but rather He is God come to earth. And that if she can only just get in close enough proximity to Him to even brush His garment, that she will be healed. And she does, and He is. The key difference that I noted last week in this developing vignette is that both Jairus and the unnamed woman seem to have a genuine faith, a saving faith in Jesus, the one called Emmanuel, that is, God with us. Not just a convenience faith attracted to the God of good gifts. So there's this delay that takes place in Jesus getting to Jairus' house where his daughter is in desperate need of a healing miracle. And while Jesus is still speaking to the woman who touched his garment and was healed, verse 35 of Mark 5, they came from the house of the synagogue officials saying, your daughter's died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? End of the story. Jairus' daughter was sick. Jesus was on His way, but He gets distracted by a woman with her own need for a miracle. And in dealing with her, Jairus' little girl succumbs to her illness. Verse 35, in light of it all, is a rational response. Look, stop troubling the teacher. It's too late. And it is too late. If Jesus is just someone with an ordinary gift. Verse 36, But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. And by the way, grammatically, that's an order. That's not a suggestion. Jesus issues a command Do not be afraid any longer. Which means Jesus knew that Jairus was afraid for his little girl's life, which makes it all the more remarkable that when the current delay occurred with the woman who was in her own need of a healing, when that comes about, Jairus didn't start pitching a fit and telling Jesus, look, we we, we can't afford to stop like this. My little girl's in critical condition. She's she's just on that verge. We've got to keep going. But he doesn't do that. And what happens? (laughs) The reward for his faith, his worst fears are realized. His daughter is dead. You see, it's a whole different level of faith. Asking for prayer for someone who is deathly ill versus asking prayer for someone who's dead. I've gone and prayed for, I can't even tell you, untold numbers of people who were on their deathbed. I've never been asked 
nor would I have gone to go and pray for somebody who is already dead, meaning to bring them back to life. Either Jairus, Jairus was a remarkably patient man, which is unlikely, or he was a man with a ridiculous faith like the woman. A faith both of them had, not in faith, a faith not in a man with a gift, but faith in the one whom the writer of Hebrews calls the author and the finisher of our faith. No one less than Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God with us. His daughter's dead. But Jesus says to Jairus once again, lead on. Verse 37, And Jesus this time allowed no one to accompany him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Now none of the other gospel writers, in fact none of the gospel writers, give us a hint of how Jesus did this, meaning keeping the crowds from coming. Did he turn and he yell at them all? Did he just do some kind of a, okay, Father, I need a roadblock here, and they all kind of were just precluded from, from moving any further by the Spirit? You see, with the exception, really, of the money changers in the temple, we don't normally see Jesus being that hard guy. We hear Jesus saying the hard things, but we don't see him becoming terse with such a crowd. But remember, the crowds were not concerned for anyone but themselves. Verse 38, They came to the house of the synagogue officials, and Jesus saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. Now this is where we in our culture, in our context, in our part of the world, are really disadvantaged not being from a Middle Eastern culture, especially an ancient Middle Eastern culture. This would be the expected scene for the day and the circumstance. Talking about the morning. The morning, which was a very, by intention, a very public, a very noisy, a very demonstrative, even theatric display of sorrow. And by that I mean that in the culture of the day, the family that was in mourning would pay people to come and mourn. There's three shekels. Come on and carry on for us. Okay. Oh, oh, such a sad time. Oh, oh, really? I mean, now, see, this seems weird to us, okay? But we're not from that culture. Now, take somebody out of that culture and put them in our culture, okay? Let's see somebody from that culture just, you know, appearing at one of our, what we call a wake, right? Where we have a casket and we have a body that's been all made up, okay? And it's got all this nice clothing on this person in the casket. And they even have glasses on their face. But they're dead. Okay? Now see, when you start thinking about that way, they'd be going, wow, these people are really weird. You know, do they realize this person's dead? I don't know. Okay? So, you see, you know, we've got to get out of our, our cultural little narrow mindset there. And entering in, Jesus said to them, Why are you making this commotion? And why are you weeping? You see, Jesus knew the culture, and he knew that the hubbub was requisite 
to the news that someone had died. He understands all that. He gets it. And as Jesus routinely does in matters where He is personally involved with someone who has died, He steers the minds of the mourning away from the stark reality by not even using the word death. Stay with me on this. Let me give you an example. Okay, Jesus' friend Lazarus. He died. He was already in the tomb. He'd been embalmed as they were in that day. He was already in the tomb. And the text even tells us in John 11 that it was starting to stink. Okay? There was no question about his death. In John 11, 11, Jesus says, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go so that I may awaken him out of his sleep. And the disciples then said to him, Lord... Look, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now the text tells us, now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Okay, Lazarus is dead. So why is Jesus using a euphemism for death with words like sleep or slumber? Is it merely to soften that harsh reality by using more pleasant-sounding language? Not in this case. Remember who is saying this. Jesus conquered death. And there is nothing of death in Jesus. He is not the giver of death even as much as God always seems to get the blame for death throughout the ages. Now, Jesus isn't the giver of death. He's the giver of life. And to the giver of life, death doesn't even enter the equation. For the giver of life, death isn't a consideration. It isn't even in the conversation. Let this one sink in. It is well known. It's been shown by public surveys throughout the decades that the greatest fear we have as human beings is death. And so the human race that does not know the giver of life, to them, death should be their greatest fear. But to those who are known by the giver of life, it should be of little concern. Nevertheless, the greatest sorrow known to humans is death. And why is that? Because God created created every one of us, created every one of us to live eternally. That was God's ultimate goal for mankind, but then you know the story. Sin entered the world and death through sin so that all, what? All died. And to that end, fear of death is a blessing from God. For it should compel that fearful heart to search for the truthful comfort. I think Paul says it best. This perishable, meaning our bodies, must put on the imperishable. means our bodies, our physical bodies, have an expiration date. And it's fixed and it's certain. It's not like walking into Caswell's. 
best before 2003. Yeah, I think I'll leave that there. And this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? See, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, in light of that, my brethren, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. To the giver of life, death is less of a concern than a hangnail. So talking about death in terms of sleep, for Jesus, it's not a euphemism. It is His reality. So He sees the mourners, and He hears the mourners. And He asks, okay, so so what's all the whoop-dee-doo about? Verse 37 through 39 in pieces here, the child has not died, but is asleep. Jesus' pronunciation that the child is only sleeping invites ridicule of the mourners and the people that were there. And they began laughing at him. But putting them all out, again, how did he do that? (laughs) Putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions, and he entered the room where the child was. And you see, the mourners weren't laughing because they thought Jesus was funny. They thought his statement was so outlandish in light of the obvious lifeless body that they were angry that he would make such a mockingly light statement. 41. Taking the child by the hand, Jesus said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means little girl. I say to you, get up. Immediately, not an hour later, not two and a half days later, not after more and more treatments were being given and this and that, we can attribute it to, to you know, a function of medicine of the day or anything like that. Jesus gave the pronouncement and immediately the little girl got up and began to walk for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astounded. Well, I should say so. I mean, can you imagine being the parents of this little girl? And how would you react to Jesus' next order? What's His next order? Verse 43. And He gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. He gave them strict orders that no one should know about this, and he said that something should be given her to eat. Thinking back to earlier portions of Mark, which we've already been through. Jesus was, as a matter of course, telling the people who were the recipients of his miracles to keep it quiet. We've seen that all through from the very beginning of Mark's gospel. 
And the reason being that His mission in coming was not to be the healer of man's sorrows, but the healer of man's sins. But the more the crowd learned about the wonder-working Savior, the more they craved His miracles, not His mercies, for why He came. Well, how did this gag order that Jesus put forth turn out? <laughs> you have to go to the book of Matthew who records this same incident. Matthew writes in verse 9:26, "And the report of this went through all the district." Go figure. Again, put yourself in the shoes of the parents, and this just happened to you and your daughter, and you're told, "Don't tell a soul." Okay? Even if you don't, there were all the mourners who had to have known what had happened. And the parents, what were they supposed to do? Were they supposed to now keep their little girl who everybody knew was dead chained indoors for the rest of her life? The community knew they had to. And now, in a bit awkward way, Mark lets no moss grow under his pen and he cuts the story off and he starts a new vignette in chapter 6 Jesus went out from there and he came into his hometown and his disciples followed him when the Sabbath came he began to teach in the synagogue and the many listeners were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? And, and what is this wisdom given to him and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter? The son of Mary? And the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And, and, and aren't these his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. One thing this might help us to appreciate is the constraints on communication as compared to our day. Wouldn't you think that Jesus would have been public knowledge far and wide? But remember, communication wasn't what it is today. So this, at any rate, is a peculiar response in verse 3 because in verse 2, they acknowledge that His words are unique and His miracles, at least some of them, were attested to. But they have this acute attack of cognitive dissonance. Hang on. And this cognitive dissonance is a result of their own knowledge of Jesus as a normal, everyday guy. And they just can't bring those two together. What's cognitive dissonance? It's a state of conflict in the mind whereby you have two opposing views going on at the same time. If you want an example of this, just you can put it to something else you might be more familiar with. If you ever watched American Idol... 
in the early phases of the show, and I'm not talking about the goofballs that would get up there and all, but truly the people in the early stages who who were there sincerely believing that they had a chance because they could sing, because they've been told their whole lives they could sing. And then they sing. (laughs) Or so they called it. I'm in the mood for love. Back in the days when Simon Cowell was there, you know, you had J-Lo. Um, honey, uh, you know, she had a hard time saying anything bad. And you got Simon whose eyes are hitting the table and coming up. Okay? Cognitive dissonance for the young lady and, and, or sometimes young man. And sometimes they would break into tears. That's cognitive dissonance. Wait, no. They believe they can sing. They've been told their whole life they can sing. They hear themselves. They can sing. And now all of a sudden these professionals are saying, you can't sing. And it's like, ah. (laughs) Just like that. (laughs) So Jesus peeps can't put these two together. They knew Him as the carpenter. They knew him as the son of Mary, the brother of four others, and then his sisters. You see, the problem was Jesus was too normal to be the person the objective reality points to. But what wins out? is not the reports that they had heard about Jesus, nor even his own words, but the fact that they knew him when. And there's no way this could be Emmanuel. Jesus said to them, verse 4, chapter 6, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown and among his own relatives, and in his own household. Apparently, Apuleius, the second century writer, was right when he said, familiarity breeds contempt. It's often attributed to Mark Twain, but Apuleius lived in the year 124 A.D. So, I knew you wanted to know that. Well, what does this possibly tell us and I underscore there, possibly tell us by implication about the kind of person Jesus was growing up before he hit that point of public ministry. You got the warning? Good. If Jesus was a holy roller, okay, what I mean, you know, I mean, just a hyper, you know, religious kind of guy, a fanatic, a spiritual busybody, one going out, standing on the intersection of a couple dirt roads, yelling at people to repent. His homies might have said, oh, yeah, well, of course, this doesn't surprise us in the least. We saw this coming. But instead, the only thing specific they mention is that they know his parents and they know his relatives meaning he was glaringly normal. And so in that, there's no reason not to think that he didn't do normal kid things. 
There's no reason not to think that he played normal kid games with his cousins and with his brothers and with his sisters. He may have spilled the goat's milk a time or two. And as a baby, there's no reason to think that his diapers didn't stink. He could have gotten rashes. You see, and yet when we hear these kinds of things, it tends to make us wince a little bit. Because we tend to think of Jesus, oh, while we know He is fully God and He is fully man. It's easy to confuse. Get ready. Homartiological perfection with ontological perfection. Stay with me. Homartiological comes from the word homartia, which is in the Greek New Testament. It is the word for sin. Okay? Homartiological perfection. is Jesus is as pure as only God can be in His very nature, in His very essence. He is sin-free. That's homartiological perfection. But developing a rash... Or having to just take in a swallow, you know, a mouthful of goat's milk, and one of his brothers or his sisters or whatever says something funny, and so he laughs and it blows milk out his nose. That's all part of his humanity. And being human in that way does not diminish homartiological perfection. Meaning Jesus pulling a gag on his sisters doesn't necessarily blemish or ruin his status as the sinless Savior of the world. If in his humanity now Jesus crossed any, any, any moral lines, then he would be homartiologically imperfect and he would be disqualified as our substitute in righteousness. You see, ontological perfection, ontological is our being, and in this case I'm talking about his being as a human being. Perfection did not necessitate that he never got a math problem wrong, and that he never did any of those other things that I've already mentioned. He can still be homartiologically perfect, sinless, fully God but also fully man. Now, just as an interesting side note, some of you who have uh, passed in uh, Catholicism, but not necessarily, um, have a compendium of works called the pseudepigraphal works. And the pseudepigrapha is a big word for uh, writings that were signed with a pseudonym, with a fake name, Okay. Now, these writings have no credibility except with certain segments of, of the church. And, and, and again, not all the pseudepigrapha um, that, that applies to the whole pseudepigrapha. But the point is, in those pseudepigraphic writings, we have some disturbing stories about the child Jesus, which, in fact, as I said, do cross that moral line which if they were true, would impugn his homardiological perfection by crossing those moral lines. Let me just give you a couple little snippets here just because they're kind of interesting in a head slap kind of way. 
from one of the pseudepigraphic writings called The Infancy Gospel of Jesus. And I'm reading here. The text describes the life of the child Jesus with fanciful and sometimes malevolent, that means wicked or evil, supernatural events. One of the episodes involves Jesus making clay birds, which he then proceeds to bring to life. In another episode, a child disperses water that Jesus had collected. Jesus, who was aged one, at the time of this so-called happening, then curses him, which causes the child's body to wither into a corpse. Another child dies when Jesus curses him when he apparently accidentally bumps into Jesus. <laughs> now, if you're looking for a babysitter, you better, you know, you better, well, I don't know, I think twice about this. And when Joseph and Mary's neighbors complain they are miraculously struck blind by Jesus. Okay? So, I mean, you see, that's what I'm talking about. You know, that would definitely cross the homardiological line and would disqualify him. Well, here's again the point. If Jesus was anything other than a profoundly normal child, then isn't it likely that that reputation would obviously have preceded him so that when he shows up back in his own hometown now as an adult, people would be more inclined to believe who he is rather than disbelieve who he is if he was just this sort of fully God child who was doing miracles and everything from the time he could walk. But what do Israelis say? Wait a minute. Who are, they, who, who are they saying this is supposed to be? Isn't, isn't this the carpenter? Mary's boy? He can't be the Messiah. He's a poser. And so it was Jesus' chronic normalcy that kept them from believing. Jesus got hungry. Jesus got tired. Jesus went to synagogue, and according to the writer of Hebrews, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Meaning he learned like other children learned. He earned a living doing menial but meaningful tasks. Cutting and planing and joining pieces of wood together. The one who now, here comes this, this, this you know, mind-boggling enigma of fully God and fully man. The one who planted forests of giant sequoias had to likewise pull splinters out of his hands. I do wonder if his siblings ever said to him, Oh, oh, and you think you're so perfect. I don't know, that's just me. By the way, speculation of mine now ends. I wonder if, or excuse me, Jesus makes the indictment that no prophet is without honor except in his own hometown, among his own relatives. And verse 5 says, and so he could do no miracle there, oh, except that he laid hands on a few sick people and he healed them. And he wondered Jesus wondered at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching. 
Even Jesus was taken aback by the general unbelief of perhaps some of the people that knew him best way back when. Verse 5 that I just read, it it is enigmatic, but I would refer you back to last week's message when I spoke just a little bit on the implications of Luke chapter 5 where Luke said, and the power of the Lord was present for Jesus to perform healing. I'm just going to leave that there. With each of Mark's narratives of Jesus, we learn more and more about him and we also learn more and more about ourselves in doing so. And this is why we study the Scriptures rather than just pouncing on them and jumping in and out with sound bites, finding tidbits and morsels that strengthen what we think is right anyway because of what I feel in my heart. But what we feel in our hearts is not reliable. Jeremiah the prophet warned in Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. But you know what precedes that warning that I just read by Jeremiah? Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes. But its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. Gee, sounds just like Psalm 1 of David. In times of high anxiety, cliches and slogans are not going to carry us. Only the rock who is higher than I. And that rock's name is Jesus. And remember what I said earlier, persecution is the great revealer of real faith. Saving faith. Let me have you stand. Let me have Scott Ludick Come on up here and close our time in prayer. does it really mean to to fall at your feet? We know, we know that you are perfection in every way. But what does it really mean to fall at your feet? Bring us that knowledge, Lord. Bring us that understanding. Help give us a a faith that is truly genuine and authentic in a way that that brings our reality in alignment with yours. 
Lord, we need you so much. We ask you to make yourself known to us through the the reading of your words, through the blessing that comes from good biblical preaching like, like Bill has brought us today. And Lord, bring us familiarity with you that that breeds confidence and that brings joy. We pray these in Jesus' name. Amen.